Hello, and welcome to another episode of your favorite D&D-themed podcast, Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the post-Thanksgiving well-fed Teos Abadia. Have you recovered, Teos? Have you recovered from the feast? I have not recovered from the feast. I have not recovered from my duty of eating leftovers. Um, it's hard to like go back to normal when everybody's like, finish that, and, and you're like, oh, Oh, that's that's my problem. Yeah. How did you fare with the fair? Uh, we we generally it was just uh, my wife and my daughter and I, so we kept it kind of on the lowdown. Um, not too many leftovers, kept it reasonable. What we do get now, though, is our post Thanksgiving snowstorm, Ooh. which seems to be hitting right now. So uh, by wow. the time. When we start the podcast, there's probably an inch of snow on the ground. If it continues at this rate, by the time we finish, there may be a foot of snow on the ground, depending on what the lake decides to do to us. Yeah. Well, it is positively balmy here in comparison. I mean, it's cold, but it's not a, uh, we're nowhere near that. So uh, happy snow day, I guess. The thing that, speaking of snow days, my son uh, is going back to school right now as we speak. He's going out the door. And this is notable because the teachers have been on strike for, I think it's officially 11 days, but they had two days they were already not there. And my son had been sick and out of school for a couple of days before that. So it's been like four weeks since my son has been in school with the holidays and everything in there. And so wow. he is going through a system shock role right now as he tries to figure out you know, what this is like. Well, I hope he survives that system shock role. Uh, I'm sure it's, it's you know, you get in this rhythm of not having to go to school than to have to go back is, I feel that, I feel yeah. that. Blunt trauma. And another thing I feel is thankful, thankful that I get to uh, do a podcast with you. And hopefully our listeners are also thankful and uh, they show their appreciation sometimes by sending in questions or comments. So let's get to a couple of those today in our listener corner. Uh, the first is Andrew Bashinsky uh, coming to us via Twitter. He says, over the recent years, in so much as one can generalize, the fifth, uh, fifth edition audience has become more invested in their characters and less comfortable with death. Should this change how we approach designing the sorts of adventures where, quote, death is not the end, and cool stuff happens when you die. Mm. Such adventures tend to place the character into more deadly situations to trigger the death payoff. But from a player perspective, since you don't know that death is not the end, it is still a potentially jarring and emotionally difficult experience as you're essentially unfairly losing your character. Uh, the bleed, uh, <laughs> the subject of recent chatter, still happens. Thoughts. Um, mm. So there, there is uh, the immediate response uh, to this actually came from someone on Twitter, uh, Jennifer Kretschmer at Dreamwist, one of the pillars of goodness and light in our D&D community. And she posted the answer. Uh, a conversation during session zero should always be about character death and how it's handled in the campaign and the world and to get the players comfort levels with it. That's a great place to make a point of there will uh, there are things to be explored in this campaign beyond death. It is not the end for the characters, mm -hmm. and yeah, you know, that's that's a great 
a great bit of advice, obviously. Let everyone know what the plans are for character death. How frequent will it be? And will there be something cool that happens when it happens? So then you can be ready for it to happen. But Andrew's original question also went into adventure design and sort of player facing stuff. So it goes a little bit more in depth into how we're going to look at it here. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I want to say is that character death does not equal characters falling unconscious. This may seem yeah. wild to people, but in my travels to conventions over the years, I've had people, players and DMs use the word death to refer to them being reduced to zero hit points. As in, oh, yeah, I was just at a game and five characters died. And I'm like, wow, five characters died. And, it, well, how'd they die? Well, they got hit by an orc and then, uh, you know, and they, they fell. I was like, well, did they fail their death saves? Was it massive damage? What do you mean? I'm like, well, you said they died. Well, they died, but they came back. I'm like, no, that's not character death. That's falling unconscious. Uh, so this question is actually talking about characters yeah. no longer being alive um just wanted to make sure we're on the same page there the next thing i want to do to andrew's question reject the idea that players are any more or less quote invested in their characters than any previous edition you know one if you go back to the satanic panic days of first edition and and uh od and d and and basic set and so on is the the people the satanic panickers feared that players would get so invested into their characters that if their characters died, the players would suffer (laughs) mental trauma, you know, anything from depression to actual suicidal thoughts. So that shows at least the implication of how invested players were in their characters in those early days. I don't think the addition or even the, the zeitgeist uh over the years has said what characters or how players relate to character death i think it's just the person and sort of the Mm. campaign you know some people get super invested some people could care less that was just as true uh way back when as it is now Uh, you look like you may have something to say on that i i i do um i you know, like I hear what you're saying, and then it is true. Like I remember, I have a folder of all my char- my dead characters, right? And there, it's all from the AD and D up to second edition era, and it's enormous, right? It's a big, thick three ring binder, mm-hmm. and and yet I remember many of those deaths being super sad and significant. Um, and I was for sure attached to them, but also those characters were less robust and interesting than they are today. And I knew less about sort of becoming invested in the character. So I'd say I'm way more invested in my characters these days. My characters are are better, more fleshed out. I want more for them than I did back then. Back then it was more like, I just really like playing this half orc. You know, he's really cool. And I was going to get this dungeon uh, magazine or dragon magazine herbalist thing that my DM had approved. And then this spider just bites me and I'm dead. And this totally is terrible. And, you know, so I was, it was a big deal, but I think that nobody was creating connections around our characters the way that people often do today in RPGs. So yes, like it, you were always attached to your characters or a lot of us were, but I still feel like there, it is, it has changed and the game itself wants to, not tell a story of dungeon exploration and looting and 
dying at the hands of a single spider bite. It wants to tell a story of sort of like big epic deaths and meaningful deaths and critical role type stuff, right? Like, I mean, that's the extreme of it, but you want like that to be like a moment that you would in the cartoon rendition of your campaign would look really good, right? Like that's what you're kind of hoping for. Okay. Fair enough. You're like, no. So then let's no. talk about this question. No, I, I can see a time investment. Mm -hmm. I can see more of a time investment in the creation of the character, in the building of the character. I don't see any more or any less investment into the story of the characters because th the same sorts of stories have been told over. Hmm. Yes, you are correct in the sense that the types of stories that were told in the earliest days tended to be you go into a dungeon, you do go through the dungeon, you succeed, you fail, whatever happens, and then you're done. Yes, you can maybe buy items. Yes, you can do this. But there was less of a story outside the dungeon, more of a story inside the dungeon. That I can see. Mm -hmm. uh, I still can point to people that were super invested, not time-wise, not just you know the amount of energy they put into it, but the actual caring about their character and the story. Yeah. I see it equally now as I saw it then. I feel like 3E so. was when I saw, you know, that was when I sat down at tables with random people and they had real thoughts around their character and real goals. Not everybody, but a lot of people did. And that's to me when I started mm -hmm. thinking of like, okay, you know, people are, and, and I would learn from the other people at the table about the, the, the cleverness that they had brought to the character that they'd fashioned versus before that, it was it was minor, right? It was it was and, and and like at least and maybe it was the groups that I played with, right? They would have even though I tried to run pretty meaningful yeah. campaigns, they would have character names that were you know insulting someone else at the table or you know something, and it was that kind of like just mm -hmm. and they just wanted to run around and kick stuff and slay stuff, and, and that was a lot of what I saw. Yeah. And, and and even though yeah. they liked well, their character, I, I, yeah, yeah. And I played with players who would make whole newsletters about the campaigns mm -hmm. and their characters and write stories and yeah. get you know super invested mm -hmm. and draw pictures and you know do do the whole thing. Um, and when you started seeing this investment was when you got into organized play, yeah, and started playing with people in in a shared world setting. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah. We don't we we can't qualify or quantify it. It's we hard, can only bring yeah. our own experiences. I mean, one thing for sure yeah. is that is that the you know I, it, maybe we agree on this. The games seem designed now around protecting your character. Do we agree on that? Like, is Five E trying to essentially make it so dying? Like TPK is really hard in Fifth Edition, right? I mean, do we agree? on Oh that? yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that that having substantial and long-lasting character death is much harder in fifth mm -hmm. edition than it has been uh in especially ad and d and uh second edition um times yeah for sure and so i think that like but you know yeah. I, I think a good question is should we be designing for that right which is i think some of what andrew here is asking like 
and, and maybe mm-hmm. he's saying like if the idea is that dying is less prevalent maybe because you're trying to get to this end point of preserving the character and having them have some grandiose story or a better chance at it if that's kind of going on then should the adventures have something to them that makes death should there either be no death or should the death be like a special thing like we see in Planescape, you know, avoiding spoilers, but there's an angle there with death. Should it be, should that be kind of what we're injecting the things? And should you have things like, Oh, you died. Then you become this special version. That is the post dead version. Yeah. I, I don't think you need to in just in general, I don't think you need to have that sort of thing in your game. I don't think Mm -hmm. the game needs to be created to take that into account because the game is already created to take that into account, right? There's revivify, there's raise dead, there's resurrection, there's wish, there's true resurrection. There's however many dozens of ways the game has already. In addition to it, just being in general, harder to have character death at the table because of death saves and healing and all of that. So do you need to No. Andrew's question is, if you do have something that happens, cool happens when the character Mm -hmm. dies, are you then more likely to try to get characters to die? Mm -hmm. And therefore, do you need to have some sort of guardrails in place? So when the characters do die, the players don't instantly get angry or sad or whatever before they even get to the cool thing. And, you know, Jennifer's answer first just say ahead of time hey your character may die here don't fret don't panic it's going to be part of the story if you don't want to do that or if you don't want if you want it to be sort of a surprise then you do though need to give hints you need to say you've heard a rumor that this person you knew died and then you saw them the next day uh, you don't know what happened, but it's weird, or you hear stories about this, or you can get more specific depending on the feature, you know, the trick that you're you're putting into right. your your game, just to prime the pump, if you will, so people understand that when they die, they their character dies, they don't have to do anything about it uh, because the story is going to take them uh, places. Yeah, I, I tend to think that death is still important to the game. Um, and by that, I mean that it's important for players to periodically have either a serious brush with it or just plain outright death. And and when I wrote a, a an organized play adventure that was kind of criticized because it has an encounter where death is is fairly possible, there's there's a, a creature that at, at your level can just one shot some characters and, and it's a chance that that'll happen. Um, you know, I mm-hmm. said, I'm okay with that. The game needs to sometimes just take you out. Um, it sucks when it happens to you, but I feel like you have to see that sometimes or we just take everything for granted. And I feel that as painful as my various character deaths were, they did make victory really sweet and they did make me care about the game and, and its lethality and then and the challenge of it was was more tangible, more real, more everything because I knew 
I saw my characters die, right? And my friends' characters die. And so that that was important. And so I do think the game needs to have some of that. And, you know, it is what it is. It's like losing at a board game. We move on, we play again, right? Like, like sometimes that will happen. Um, and I think those are poignant scenes, even if it's rare, like it is in fifth edition, when characters die in, in a fifth edition campaign, I think that's memorable for everybody. And, and there should be that going on in the game. Mm-hmm. If we always do the, okay. you know, you died, but you came back in ghost form, well, you know, that then, you know, it's almost like you just, it's a part of your character rather than being what it should be, what it is in real life, right? It's scary. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Andrew, thank you for that, that question. And our next question comes from Monster Fight 5e of via Mastodon. Hey, Sean, are you going to talk about the design process of making this adventure, Peril in Pinebrook, uh, on Mastering Dungeons? So I wasn't going to. We mentioned it last week. I wasn't going to really get into the design. But I I have gotten so many questions on this that I probably should just bring it up and answer some of the questions. So I will do so. Now, because of NDAs, I am not going to talk about anything specific in the Watsy process side of things. Uh, I can say that it's great to work with all the folks at Wizards of the Coast who contributed to this work, uh, contributed ideas, contributed editing, art, direction, what you know, all of it. Wonderful folks. And it really is a testament to their professionalism and their love for the game that they take time to do a project like this. Uh, if you don't know what project I'm talking about, uh, Peril in Pinebrook is a free adventure that you can get from the Wizards of the Coast website. It is part of the educator resource project that they do that includes uh, curriculum packets for teachers, free resources for teachers who are using D&D either in the classroom or for club activities. So this adventure is something that they can run. It was written to be run, and I have to make this clear. Uh, it's written to be run by people who have never played or seen D&D. So this is a, huh, I know people want to play D&D. Maybe I should try to run it. I don't have the rules. I don't have rule books. Heck, I don't even have dice. What do I do? So they can pick this up, and it's meant to be digestible and runnable by someone who's never played D&D quite possibly a middle school or even younger DM and someone who had no time to prepare the adventure beforehand. So it's pick it up, read the box text, walk through everything step by step by step. And can I ask, it's a manual more than it is typical game material. Yeah. Can I ask, was that sort of the vision from the beginning? Like here's, we're doing this as part of this educator resource page um, or, or did it kind of become that? Nope. That's what it was from the start. Which is awesome. That's a great goal. So, and I'm glad to hear that D&D was thinking about that, right? Because that, that is a great thing to be thinking about. Like, how can just anybody pick up and go? Uh, and especially in the in the school context where you want people to get going so that you can run a club. And so the idea that you could just mm-hmm. not be intimidated, go to it is awesome. And so then with this directive, I mean, you must have had, I mean, that's an enormous thing to try to do. How did you approach that? I approached it by using my years of experience in teaching new players how Mm -hmm. to play the game and thinking of 
or seeing other people teach the game and think everything I did wrong, hmm. everything I did that was too much or sometimes too little, but usually too much for someone to understand or someone to absorb or someone to take in, uh, you know, in a very brief amount of time that we have to teach it. And this whole experience was meant to run in like 90 minutes, because if you're in an after school club, you may only have a half hour or an hour. If you're lucky, two hours, the local gaming club at the high school here, they don't have enough time to run role playing games at their normal meetings. They only have time for like quick board games because of school restrictions. So, but once a month they can do a longer thing and that's when they run their role-playing game sessions. Hmm. So, so as I'm doing all of this, I'm thinking, what can I pull out of the game while having it still be D and D still following the rules, but just removing some things. Uh, and with the understanding that this is not for D&D players. This is not for experienced dungeon masters. This is for that audience. That's why we're probably not going to see it on D&D Beyond. That's why it is a PDF coming from the educator resource page, not something that you go and purchase or, or look at on D&D Beyond. So I took care to make sure that the rules weren't changed. There's no saving throws. We don't talk about ability scores. There's no big extensive list of skills. It's just what do you need at its most basic level to run a fun game of D&D and get across the flow of the game without having to sit for 90 minutes and explaining things. So the first thing I took out were ability scores. Because... What's the first thing that you feel like you have to do sometimes when they're looking at a character sheet? What does strength mean? What does dexterity mean? What does intelligence, charisma, constitution, what does that all mean? And we say it both in terms of what it means for just a definition and then what it means in the game. Mm -hmm. And I've seen people take an hour just to do that. <laughs> Can't do that here. So we want to get this, uh, get it going. And that, so that's what I did. There was also no time to get into these deep philosophical debates about like what's good and evil or what does fun mean. Uh, I, I put uh, I was putting tips for the dungeon masters and then tips for players in it. And so I for the first tip I put for dungeon masters is have fun. Uh, if 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 everyone agrees that changing rules or changing the story means that a game will be more fun, then change it. Now. Other times, rule zero, as it's been described, is the dungeon master is always right. Mm -hmm. And that's not the tone that we want to set here mm -hmm. for perhaps a very young, uh, inexperienced, first-time dungeon master. We don't want to say, you're always right. We want to say, have fun. You have fun, and make sure everybody else has fun. And... You know, we don't want to get into, well, the game's always not going to be fun. That's not how, you know, when you come to introduce someone to a new hobby, you don't want to get into this, well, sometimes the game's just not fun. Not, not what you want to say. You want to get into a philosophical discussion in a Dungeon Master's Guide? Rock on. Uh, not here. So that's where that sort of thing came from. And then it was just tell a story. To uh, get 
players making decisions and rolling dice and and smiling and laughing and making decisions that may or may not have a large impact on the story, but at least making decisions. Uh, and and so that was the whole design process. It's it's if you read the adventure, it's quite simple. It's quite straightforward. Definitely linear. Tried to throw in a couple of cool things that would make the players go, ooh, that's weird, or oh, cool. Try to throw in a couple of things where the DM might be able to to uh, use their creative and storytelling chops uh, in a controlled manner. And that's pretty much how the design went. I am impressed with the amount of feedback I got hmm. during design and the number of iterations hmm. that this went through to get it to the state that it's in. Uh, if if this little PDF went through this much review, I can't even begin to fathom how much a big hardcover release goes through. Let's put it <laughs> wow. that way. Okay. So uh, that's good. So in, in general, it's just a, let's introduce people to the concept of telling a story, asking what their characters do, giving an answer, rolling dice when necessary, and getting to the next part of the story. That's cool. I mean, looking at, at the, the the PDF here, which which everybody can get for free, as you mentioned, uh, it, it's cool to note, like, you've got this awesome cover. Then you've got really a page that sort of sets the tone and a page on rules. That's it. And then it's a page on running mm -hmm. the adventure, some tips for running the adventure. And then we're into the introduction. The introduction is a page. Starting the adventure is a page. It's all really concise. It reminds me almost, I don't know if you did this deliberately, but uh, of D&D of &D encounters. Like, you know, encounter two is on two pages, right? That could be facing each other. Um, encounter mm -hmm. three, I think, is, is the same. Like, it's sort of this two-page spread, which makes it very self-contained, very easy to run. Uh, you also, a really nice thing is the estimated playtime for each encounter. That's super helpful for people planning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and some nice yeah, things. My original, mm -hmm. Yeah, my original hope was to get it all down to one page. For you know, every page would be its own thing. You know, tell this to the players. Hey DM, this is what you need to know. Here's encounter one, one page. Here's a some of them needed to run a little bit longer to get all the instruction that was needed to show how to teach the game. Uh, but for the most part, it it was that. Let's keep everything on the two pages. It was also preferred to refer to the practically complete guide to dragons, which Wizard had right. released, you know, a few months back. So it uses that chart of draconic words and their translation into common. So we could do some fun things with that. Do a little puzzle where you know the players would have to look up words in the in the glossary and then translate. So you know that sort of thing. The thing that we find fun as players. Uh, pared down and put into a form that could be easily explained and uh, used by new dungeon masters. And I like that you have a, a sort of glossary page reference sheet uh, at the end, and then there is a tips for players. Mm -hmm. There's just a, a like three quick like be a good teammate, think about your character's actions, be supportive. That's nice. Um, I, I can't help but notice no link to the basic rules that I can find. It. it links to or suggest that you go to dnd.wizards.com to get 
the practical guide to dragons, which I'd be surprised mm -hmm. whether you can easily get from that website to to that. But but uh, but at least mm -hmm. it tries to send you somewhere. Um, four pregens, which is interesting, mm -hmm. and they seem to be slightly different from ones that I've seen before. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, these are I created them specifically okay. for this. I nice. wasn't using any previous template. Uh, we wanted to give them give the players the basics. So rather than having all this information is what what is something you're likely to do? We'll have a line for that. You're mm -hmm. likely to attack. So here's a melee weapon. Here's a ranged weapon. Oh, you're a spellcaster. Under attacks, we will have the spell that you can cast. And then we decided to give one special ability mm. for each uh, character that sort of mimics something that their class would do if they were running a full character. Uh, so cool. the rogue gets a, it's not a sneak attack, but the first attack they do during an encounter, they can do extra damage. Uh, a fighter can use a second win sort of thing. The cleric can heal. Nice. And the, yeah. the wizard can cast a can cast magic missile. And you avoid uh, so. the problem of, uh, hey, I have this list of spells. Go find somewhere on the internet where these are actually <laughs> referred to. I also love here yeah. this. Each of them has a description block, and you have a checkbox. Mm -hmm. Choose one or the other for each line. So, like for the um, cleric, I'm graceful or I'm clumsy. Choose one or the other. I'm silly or I'm serious. I'm polished armor or tarnished armor. Peaceful or warlike. That's really cool. That, where'd you come up with that? There was there some inspiration for that. Well, the the inspiration for it was dual. The first is you know having taught D and D for so many years at so many different locations, coming up with descriptions is hard for players. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't really have a frame of reference, so this gives them the chance to create their character, but it limits the choices. Right, it puts it in that box that they can then. Uh, oh, okay. This is what you mean when you say, "What's your character like? What do they look like? What do they yeah. sound like? Uh, what what what's their personality?" A game that does this really well is Dungeon World or the Apocalypse World games. Um, they have you can make a checklist of the different things that your character might do or wear. Sometimes it's highly mechanical. Sometimes it's just cosmetic. Uh, so it it was that was a good template to to do this through. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so people, I've heard a few people have run it. Um, most of the people who've run it are more experienced, but they say that it's working well. So I'm still waiting to see if it goes to to game uh, to schools, you know, and people are trying to run it who have no experience, how that plays out. We did play test it with a couple groups that were in that situation, and I got some good feedback from them. You know, took a few more things out polished a few things here and there uh so we'll see how it goes did you go to the mall during thanksgiving i need someone to play test this game <laughs> i absolutely did not do that i am not that outgoing in any way shape or form <laughs> well congratulations this is an awesome project it looks great uh another i mean i can't think of if someone were to say to me hey we need somebody for this kind of a project i'd be like well you want sean merwin so uh, that, that I'm, I'm glad they, they worked with you. Um, it's also interesting to me, you know, someone was saying to me, wait, I thought Wizards of the Coast wasn't using freelancers. And I said, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I, 
I know they're changed. using at least one. Yeah. Uh, and two, because Scott Fitzgerald yeah. Gray worked on the editing. So. Yeah, Scott worked as an editor. So, yeah. But everybody, you know, everybody down the line uh, really invested their time and energy and thought to get this right. So hopefully uh, it hopefully it resonates with folks and it pulls some people who might otherwise not get a chance to play, at least introduce them to the hobby, if not bring them in as full-time uh, experienced game masters and players. Awesome. Shall we get to our news and commentary? Yes. We are going to do that then. We're going to start by saying that Dungeons and Dragons at PAX Unplugged 2023 starts Friday. And we got a preview of what Wizards of the Coast and their affiliates were going to be doing there. First, we heard that there will be a 50 Years of D&D panel uh, hosted by some WOTC staff members. They will talk about what has been in D&D and what will be coming in D&D. So that will be interesting, and it's great that they have a full contingent of staffers there to uh, to do that. And it's going to be streamed. What else is happening? A D&D store. It, okay, yes, you're absolutely right. That's, it will be streamed. So it's apparently going to be on the so, YouTube channel um which is kind of cool so you see you know we, we will unlike you know we had all the like what exactly was it that they said trying to recall when it came to the game hole panel uh this year you know it is going to be streamed so we can all find out and refer to the video <laughs> um you asked you can you catch it and link in the show notes yeah and you asked what else um the D D store by bald man games so all throughout the whenever the hall is open you can go to hall c booth 35a and there you will find all kinds of products the planescape book will be be there there's an official penny arcade pin of the lady of pain and lots of other products mm-hmm. there for sale and of course they're offering some sure. games sean they are. They're offering quite a bit of games, actually. If you want to get your D&D on, especially your Planescape on, you can play, thanks to Bald Man Games, Planescape Chapter 1. So the adventure that we have been reviewing and will be reviewing again soon. Um, you can play Chapter 1 of Turn of Fortune's Wheel. There's There will also be a Planescape epic called Power in Pieces, written by Eric Mengi. And then some other schlub who shall remain nameless. Yeah, I'm sure Eric will and make it, up that for will whoever be, that idiot was. Exactly. That will be a four-hour <laughs> event where you get to rollick and frolic and perhaps perish in uh, the cage, sigil, the city of doors. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much about it, but... The DMs who are going to run it are reviewing copies of it as we speak, and I'm hearing some pretty fantastic things that will be accompanying this epic as well, so keep an eye out for that. If you're not in the Planescape, you can also play Tomb of Horrors and the Hidden Shrine of Tamoachan. That will be run by uh, Bald Man Games. You can play your Adventures League characters, or you can use pre-gens that will be supplied by Bald Man Games. And that is true for all of these adventures. But if you you got your panel, you bought your stuff, you played your D&D, there's even more. What? Once you buy your books, Teos, what do you think can happen? 
I mean, anything can happen. But uh, maybe I could take my book to somebody famous and have them sign it. Is that possible, Sean? It's true. It is possible. Not only is it possible, it's possible from Jeremy Crawford, Mackenzie DeArmas, Dan Dillon, Amanda Hammond, Chris Perkins, and James Wyatt. All of those folks will be at PAX Unplugged, signing books, talking with fans, giving their thoughts on this amazing job that they do. But that's not all. We also get this little hint. If you want more glimpses of the future of D&D, be on the lookout near the D&D play area. See you in Philadelphia. Ooh. We don't know what that means, although rumor has it that they may be showing off a virtual tabletop. Ooh. Very cool. All right. We'll see what that is. I'm excited we'll to see, see what this virtual tabletop show off is actually something that we haven't seen before. If it's ex the exact same build as before, <laughs> I'm very hopeful that it's got some indication of... Uh, how it actually looks to play a game in in the with revisions, right? With improvements. See. Yeah. Well, you know, Teos, not all of us got a chance to go to Wizards of the Coast headquarters to see it. Some of us, you know, just we have to wait for it to come to us. I know, but even those folks who had to slum it and watch it on a video, I mean, you kind of got the full experience. But just saying, it's been a lot of months, mm -hmm. and every everybody who's touched it seems to have seen the exact same thing for all intents and purposes. So I'm ready to be amazed with changes. Okay. We get a new digital release coming. It's called Heroes Feast, Saving the Children's Menu. This is a one-shot adventure, digital only, $5 on D&D Beyond. The adventure is for 10th level characters based on the third-party cookbook called Heroes Feast. Hmm. A new Heroes Feast should be coming out soon. Uh, tell us more about this, Teos. Yeah, I mean, so it's a little surprising to me that it's based on a third-party product like that, though, you know, we looked at the, those sales numbers from the book scan data, and Heroes Feast mm -hmm. was in the top 10 of all sales. So it's wildly popular, so maybe that's why. But I always think it's a little dangerous to play off of third parties, but, but they're doing it, and, and maybe it's good. Maybe it's healthy. Um, the adventure was written by actress and DM Deborah Ann Wall. Uh, we hear it was written some time ago, back when Kate Welch was on the D&D team. So thank you, Kate, for that. Um, it may have even been part of a larger project that then became this. The adventure is roughly 7,200 words in length. It centers on locating missing magical ingredients to create the favorite dish of the town of Daggerford, so set in the Forgotten Realms. And you have to figure out why was the supply of ingredients disrupted and what's behind this. There is a video on YouTube interviewing Deborah Ann Wall. A D&D Beyond article talks about um, why higher level play is fun since this is for level 10 characters. Um, so it kind of talks you into that, which I thought was kind of a funny article to write because 10th level is halfway. It's not really high level play, but, mm. you know, isn't that mid-level play? But um, but I think maybe realistically for the way people play, it kind of is. Um, so I'm not saying the article is mm -hmm. not appropriate. I just it's sort of it caused me to look at it and go, oh yeah, wow, hmm, interesting. This is the what third digital product in very rapid succession, and it's like I don't know. I, I I'm I'm already kind of wanting them to slow down a bit, but we'll see. Mm -hmm. 
See what the cadence okay. is. I. That's right. That's right. Uh, so you can get those videos on D&D Beyond and also on YouTube. Uh, we also have news on the deck of many things. We said before that it had to be postponed due to publication issues. And now we knew, have a new date for it. The date was announced on D&D Beyond as January 5th for the Deck of Many Things physical release. And Teos notes in our show notes, that's got to hurt for those holiday dollars that you sometimes depend upon. Yeah, this is a premium product. It's clearly one of those like, you know, what's the big gift you want? Oh, I'd really love to have, you know, this expensive Deck of Many Things with the deck inside and all this and yeah we'll yeah. see just and just as we started recording we come to find out that a new player packet play test packet for D D 2024 has dropped just uh just this morning i'm so the excited barbarian Sean. wait wait did you say barbarian yeah. i'm so excited for this dmg content tell me it's full of dmg content yes. right packed i believe that they may have uh may have not quite gotten that ready. Mm. So we are getting a revised version of the Barbarian, the Druid, and the Monk. Also new spells, revisions to existing spells and weapons, and a revised version of the Ability Score Improvement feat. The Glossary has also been updated to supersede the Glossary from the previous playtest packets. We're not going to do an in-depth look at this, uh, at least this week. We'll see when we get a chance to sit down and read it if there's anything worth talking about next time. I couldn't help but look up when you said ability score improvement. So ability score improvement is now a feat you choose. So that whole like, you know, you don't have to use feats, like it's literally a feat is ability score improvement, where you increase one ability score of your mm -hmm. choice by two or two ability scores of your choice by one. Can't increase it above 20 until you're level 19. At that point, you can increase it to 22. But I find that really interesting that they've made it an actual feat now. So it's like, <laughs> choose a feat or a feat, yeah. John. Yeah, well, it's, it's the same thing. It's just moving what it, what it is. Yeah, so... <laughs> I I will wait until they release the version of the game and then I will pass my judgment then. Um who I'm knows we that. we know from experience that they could put uh put something in playtest packets that looks great or looks terrible and then we never see it again or we see something come into the 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 game that was never playtested or at least not playtested publicly that we saw so yeah you never true. know. Uh, speaking of sequels, the D&D movie sequel has us interested? Yeah. Maybe? You want to tell us about this? I'm very interested. Uh, and I know who else is, is interested is Dave Clark, who blogged about this. Um, but there was a story on Games Radar that where they were interviewing Chris Pine about another movie that he's on. And they asked him, I guess the, the people interviewing were D&D fans, and they asked Hey, how about a potential sequel to the D&D movie? And Pine said, quote, I've heard some rumors about it, but I don't know anything yet. But I feel pretty confident that it may happen. When asked if he'd be happy to return, he said, absolutely. So that's a good sign. And uh, Dave Clark on his blog 
talks about this and how the current movie has been very successful on Paramount Plus more than anyone. Dave's been uh, watching the the rankings of the movie on Paramount Plus. It is top five on Paramount Plus worldwide and top three in the U.S. right now. And it has been strong since release. It's only dipped out of the top 10 when Halloween had all like the Halloween movies were big, right? So it was all Halloween one through 10. Right. Um, so it suggests a pretty decent long tail. And he points out that the, mm-hmm. the movie lost money, but a relatively small amount at a time when big franchise movies were big, were losing even more. Right. So in this, in the, in the scheme of everything, it's probably in a pretty good place. Plus, there's no doubt we can look at like the book scan data jump and so on. The movie seemed to boost sales. There's a there are two blips mm-hmm. right around the announcement of the movie, the Super Bowl ad and the uh, release of the movie. Um, so, you know, this could all be really good for D&D to go into a sequel. So we'll see. It'd be super awesome. Mm-hmm. There you go. Now to get into a little crowdfunding news. I want to remind everybody that The Seeker's Guide to Enchanting Emporiums is live right now on Kickstarter. What do you get? You get a sequel to the super high-selling Seeker's Guide to Twisted Taverns. So Twisted Taverns was taverns, amazing, fun, and counter-filled taverns you could throw into your your campaign. This one is the same, but with – uh, magic item shops or shops in general. You get f- at least 15 magic shops that are much more than what they seem. It's more than six memorable NPCs to interact with over and over again. They will become mainstays in your campaign with the shops that they oversee. Over 100 new magic items, NPCs, quests, adventure hooks, and encounters to inspire your game. Uh, who contributed? Jenny D, maybe you've heard of her, James Hake, Logan Reese, also known as Runesmith, Ben Byrne, the host of the 1.5 most popular D&D podcast in all the realms, and many, many more. Um, the Kickstarter is only about a week old. We're already over 300,000, uh, and more stretch goals are dropping as we go. So check that out if you haven't already. Uh other crowdfunding news, Teos, what do you got? Yeah, so uh, it's got to be the shoes. Luke Gygax has launched a shoe company. I don't know if you expected that. If it's on your bingo card, pat yourself on the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Luke mm-hmm. Gygax has launched Gaxworks, a web store offering two designs so far for Converse-style shoes in a variety of styles like low-top, high-top, black or white rubber. And then you can choose either the Firewalker Red Dragon or the Elf and Eye Beholder with art by Errol Otis. Luke reminds us that Gary was once a shoe salesman, so I guess it runs in the family. $90 on up, which for shoes I'm told is reasonable, even though I'm absolutely cheap. Um, but you can see it there, gaxworks.com g20shoes, link in the show notes. Sean, we also have a new Dark Sun fan supplement. Friend of the show, fellow Dark Sun superfan, Robert Aducci, reached out. He and creators have released Scale, Tail, and Claw, the reptilian people of Athos. Athos.org often has all kinds of Dark Sun content, so this is a free supplement under the fan policy with new reptilian options, uh, all at athos.org. And we also got news on Brian Sanderson's Stormlight RPG. And we got a glimpse of some of the designers and editors credited in this upcoming role-playing game. 
friends of the show like Mario Ortegan and uh, Anthony Rivera, editors like oh, and creators and editors like Sadie Lowry and Laura Herzbrunner have all worked on many 5e projects, including official Wizards of the Coast products, and now they are working on this. The Kickstarter will not launch until next year, but you can learn more about this game and the people who created it uh, at polygon.com if you search under Stormlight RPG. Yeah, and I'm interested to see how this takes off because uh, Brian Sanderson had been working in the past with Crafty Games and they made the Mistborn RPG. I believe Logan Bonner was the lead designer on that. Um, it's been out for a long time and sort of like the Song of Ice and Fire, it's been a quiet RPG, right? That that has not been played like in, in any way commensurate with, say, the size of the book sales, right? And is that because Crafty mm -hmm. Games is a smaller company? I don't know. Um, but it'll be interesting to see whether this comes with some sort of a media push that is huge and explodes all over the place, right? But but it's it's interesting with things like this, the Marvel RPG. You know, there's this potential. Can it be realized? So I'm, that's the thing that I'm most interested when it comes to this RPG. I, I have no doubt it'll be well designed, but does it somehow reach out and become huge? But we have more important things to talk about here on this episode of Mastering Dungeons. What are we talking about? We're talking about 5th edition Planescape. We have been covering the entire product from Sigil and the Outlands to Mort's, I can never remember, Planar Parade. There we go. Now we are looking at the Turn of Fortune's Wheel, the adventure that comes with your Planescape product. We've looked at chapters one and two of the adventure. We are about to embark on chapter three. The klaxons should now be going off because <laughs> there will be spoilers here. You have been warned. If you are going to play this adventure or if you're going to read it and don't want to have the plot and the encounters of the adventure spoiled, abandon ship here, folks. Here we go. In the first two chapters, we wake up in the mortuary and are told that something's wrong with us and with the world and with the multiverse itself. So we escape the mortuary, we get out into Sigil proper, and we are hustled away from potential uh, incarceration by an NPC who tells us that they are going to help. We get finally to the place where we are supposedly safe which is called Fortune's Wheel, the casino run by Shameska. So lead on, Teos. Tell yeah. us where we're headed now. Well, you can see, for those uh, watching the video, you know, kind of the beauty of it. Um, so this provides us with a casino experience. Um, when you arrive, uh, you, you know, we talked about last time how Chapter 2 is a little sort of thin, maybe, and a little strange, and your characters may have questions. They may, again, have questions because they're walking and they see this opulent casino and they're told hey um you will be meeting with uh Shemeska, uh three hours from now here are room keys you can go up to your room and and bathe and and there's clothing and you know like all kinds of stuff like you're all taken care of there's a a kind of butler type there uh valak who will cater to your need though he expects a small silver piece tip and 
then enjoy the casino. And oh, by the way, I gotta go. So, so your your guide leaves, and you're left in the hands of of Valak, and you are to enjoy the casino experience. Which again, you might be going like, but I want to find out what's going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Play some casino games, Sean. Yes, and so off we go. We get a description of the casino. Beautiful, colorful map. Love the love the map. Uh, we get the rules of the casino. Uh, instead of using your own coin, you use uh, what are called razor leaves. These are the chips. One razor leaf, a gold-hued token inscribed with razor vine leaf, is worth 10 gold pieces. So immediately you get the casino experience of, here you go, you're given some for free, but you can also buy more if you choose. And then you can go play casino games. Uh, We get a list of four gamblers who are there to add color to the scenes um, and locations within the casino, including a bar, the cages, an illusory fountain that is actually a scrying device that the Mezaloth guards use to watch the casino. Um, There are slot machines and table games, as well as Fortune's Wheel, the big game that everyone can play that costs five razor leaves to spin the wheel that's 50 gold pieces there's also an ice lounge and a stage back rooms like security rooms and private rooms uh as well as a portal to the platinum rooms which come about later in the adventure what do you think of these games Teos? Uh, they're perfectly cromulent. They, um, you know, they're fun, right? They're interesting and quirky, like the slot machines. Two of them are duodron modrons. I don't know why they didn't make all of them that, but, but, um, and there are simple rules for playing and, and, you know, you can win tiny larvae or teeth or a jackpot, like a necklace of fireballs. And you'll probably run out pretty quickly. I mean, I think that's one thing that I, I think is that the amount of currency you have but maybe the idea is just different players will play different games, so it's probably fine. Um, you play through these various games, and I think the idea is really kind of, you know, explore as much as you want of this. And in and around, there are the games themselves that I, you know, I think these things are always fun. Like, they're fun. It changes up the session. I don't know that it fits in the cadence of what this adventure, where the adventure started. I think it's a little bit of an odd placement um, in terms of the kind of story beat, the the story feel. But these kinds of activities are fun. And in and around them are some interesting characters, right? There's a Yeti bartender at the Ice Lounge and has a face-numbing cocktail named Abominable Yes, Please. There is a sulking white dragon that has accumulated a huge bar tab. And if you help them out, they thank you and they just leave. Like, I hope they come back later in this adventure. Um, but uh, if you don't do that, they will cause an incident later. And there are a couple of events that happen as, as at the end of each hour. Um, there are some identity thieves that are Vecna impersonators that are pickpockets. Um, there is the young white dragon, which might snap. But if you took care of them, then nothing happens. And at the end of the third hour, Shemeska will arrive and you meet with them. So, yeah, I thought it was fine. Um, you know, fun design, but but I just it just feels a little strange to happen here at this point in the adventure. But what do you think, Sean? Yeah, it 
adventure design is hard <laughs> and people it goes to the fundamental point of why do people buy adventures do they buy adventures for the setting or do they buy adventures for the encounters and the answer is always both, but the question is then to what extent do they do these things? And so far, what we've seen are a ch first chapter where you're given a goal right away, that's good. You need to escape. People aren't going to want you here, so get out as quickly as you can. Um, and, and if you choose correctly, you can. You can get out with basically one encounter. Right. Then we get to the second chapter, which is similarly, okay, you're here, you come out, and you need to find your way out of things. How? How do you do that? You get a guide right away. That's good. The action comes to you. You don't have to go search for it. But boom, Okay. And then you're off, but the game master ends up being the one to create the adventure that happens within the setting of the chapter, which can be fine. There were some options that were given, but it, it was sort of make it up as you go. Then we get to the third chapter, which is this really cool setting, give you nice descriptions, funny, quirky, but it's sort of make up your own adventure. They do give you three timed events at the end of each hour. The first is Identity Thieves. You talked about the Vecna impersonators. Mm -hmm. uh, second, there's the Disgruntled Patron. So the White Dragon, if its tab is not paid, snaps. And then you either have to talk it down or or deal with it in some way. And then the third timed event is Shemeska Arrives. So really, that's not an event. Yeah. That's and, the end of the chapter. And hearing you say this, what it really makes me think is these two chapters have tamped down all of the goals and impetus that you had in the first chapter. So your first chapter, you're like, you got to figure out who, what's going on here, but you got to get out, right? So get it. So get mm -hmm. out is priority one. Priority two is learn about who you are. And then we have two whole chapters where you can't learn who you are. You can't even ask with any with anything coming your way. Maybe you in chapter you get some visions or something like that. And that's it it that's rough when you kind of in, in your game incentive sort of tamps down what is actually your one goal and motivation. And and particularly in chapter in this chapter in the casino, it's mode it's replacing it with hey, you're fine to just sit around and play games, right? And, and chapter two had a little of that with like, maybe you just want to go have like a sandwich, and, you know, an outer planer sandwich. Mm. And it's like, I that's the wrong energy, right? Like, and if I had character goals that could be fulfilled at the at this mm -hmm. casino, right? If there were a person that knows about the dead or mm. about how people has strange tales of the mortuary or something, then you could play these games while trying to get in on their good side or something and, and get to meet them or something like that. And your goals would align. You'd have a reason to play this, but also play these games, have fun, but be on track for what your goals are. Right. Shemeska, we learn at the end of this chapter, is a player. 
right? Mm -hmm. She is playing everyone all the time. The world, the multiverse, they're just pawns, whether they're her allies or her enemies, they're just pawns. And everything she does is for a reason. So this chapter needs to have her messing with the players in some way right away. Not sit around and have fun, but something comes up to the characters and attacks them or messes with them. So Shemeska can then come in and rescue them mm -hmm. again to put them in her debt. Or maybe the note says, oh, do you know, here's some coin, here's a room, refresh yourself, have a meal, have a drink, play some games, but I want you to blank. Mm -hmm. Whatever that may be, that then puts the players on track for something, puts them in her debt yeah. again, yeah. or she pretends that she's in the player's debt and is helping them because they helped her. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you are this mastermind of Shemeska, you would orchestrate something at the casino that would mm -hmm. really want them to have her help. Right. And and instead, she just sort of meets and she says, and, and we get some advice on running her, right? That because mm -hmm. it, it, she it, this it, it always is intimidating to run the villain as a not villain. Uh, right. One of the advice bits we get is she will admit to being dangerous because she's a fiend, right? She's a Yugoloth, mm -hmm. and she thrives on mutual distrust. And so it doesn't matter what she wants with this Modron that she's going to send you to find because sort of like it doesn't matter what my reasons are. You're, you know, we don't trust each other anyway. And I'm like, that's going to make everybody more suspicious. Um mm -hmm. And and if you are suspicious, she just offers you an extra 300 gold up front. And that's a little. It's it, it, this it's that kind of plot hook that just assumes the characters will go along with this no matter mm -hmm. what. But they don't really have to. Right. And, and I don't know right. that they are given proper information here to really. The, the idea is you go do this task for me of, of getting a rogue Modron that has vanished into the outlands i will meanwhile take my vast information network and have them figure out who you are mm -hmm. but we're told as dms the whole point of this is a distraction to tie up the characters they might even die um and so she's which is a little weird because she knows they can't die um plus also i think she needs this modron but but that's what we're mm -hmm. told is they will go they might even come back and it ties them up while she can further her plans um, there's no guidance here around something like a wisdom insight check against her. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a little strange. If they accept, they get a piece of lapis lazuli shaped like an eye, which is a key to a portal in the clerk's ward. And that'll take them to the outlands and the next chapter. And she then will excuse herself to go have her agent search for information for them. But she's mm -hmm. not actually doing that. She already knows who they are. Yeah. She's not there to help them. Um, and you have you could keep enjoying the casino if you want or head to the outlands whenever you're ready and that's kind of the chapter and it mm, i think yeah. work could have been done here to to make this yeah. yeah yeah two 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 things one if you're going to have the characters level up after every chapter because you're going to do mm. story-based leveling you need to have enough content 
that they feel like they've done enough to level up. I'm cool with level up each chapter. Not a not don't have any quarrel with that at all. Make it feel like they've done something. They could literally walk in, stay in their room for three hours, <laughs> come out to get the mission, and they've leveled. Yeah, that's a great point. And and last chapter wow. too was gain a level for walking across the town. At least you did go in the underdark and the under sigil. So I guess under sigil. That, yeah. Yeah. The second thing is, if you're going to write an adventure that relies on DMs to add stuff to it, either on the fly or planned things, let them know the full story ahead of time. Let them know why is you. It, the adventure says Shemeska sends them out saying that this Modron was an accountant that worked for her casino who escaped and he has lots of information that could hurt the casino. So she wants him found. Mm. Okay, cool. That's, that's the lie she tells. Then the adventure tells the DM she's just doing this to get rid of the players, to get them out of her hair. But by putting them into contact with this Modron, she is actually undoing her own plans. And if she's as smart as she as the adventure says she is, she would not do that. Yeah. Uh, she might want to, if, if she just wants to get rid of the characters, she could just kill them. If she needs them alive, I need to know why she needs them alive. If she's trying to use them to get to, to work against their own interests, I need to know what it is she's planning. So I can add elements to the game that do that. Mm Mm-hmm. But as it is written right now, she does not seem like she's a genius mastermind spy. She seems like she's making one mistake after the other, unless I know what her plans are. Mm -hmm. If I know what her plans are, then I can say, okay, she actually does want the Modron found, but for a different reason. And she wants the players to trust her. So She is going to set up what looks like a robbery from her casino. She's going to have the players investigate this robbery. There are going to be clues that she has planted here that points to a Modron. And then she is going to say, oh, a Modron did this you have found? Why, thank you. I would have never known that without your help. There is a Modron that worked for me who has not been seen in days. Hmm. Now that you have solved this problem for me, thank you. That was two hours of playtime plus a small combat that makes you feel like you've done some things. Now I know I heard rumors that he was seen in the Outlands. I can send you to the last place he was seen. Mm-hmm. Boom. You have now have a reason for the players to trust her. Right. She has put herself into their debt, uh, at least, you know, what it seems. But I need to know this so I can make those sorts of changes. Yeah, and the emphasis needs to be on the player character goals. And mm-hmm. that's where, from the very beginning, you know, the the um, Shemeska's uh, spy who who accompanied you last time just sort of leaves but could plant all these seeds, right? Could say, there's no better information broker than Shemeska. If mm-hmm. anybody can find out who you are, this is who it is. That's why I've brought you to her. Um, and, and, you know, if you can prove your value to her, she would work with you. Mm-hmm. 
and set right. that up, right? And then, oh, look, a situation happens that allows you to prove your value. And now she's, you know, going to repay the favor, uh, you know, just this one more thing for her. something like that. Yeah, it's it's thin. And and I, I, I very much dislike it's the whole like go to Cholt and we're told you got to go stop mm. the death curse. But hey, how about some dinosaur races? And you're like, I really want to do these dinosaur races, but this feels totally at odds with my goals. Right, right. Yeah. And so in that case, you, adventure writer, are the person who's giving the goals to the characters. So you can manipulate that in any way you want. You just have to actually take the time to think about that and then do that in the most organic, fun and engaging way possible. Yes. So. So. We meet Shemeska. So let's let's step all the way back. So you get there. You freshen up in these beautiful, opulent rooms, which it would be great if there was something you could do when you go to the rooms. Uh, anything. Uh, yeah. Anything that there is a decision, there's checks to be made, something. Are these rooms being watched? Yes. Okay. How can the characters figure that out? And what can they do to stop that from happening? Great. They've done the thing there. Now they go down to the table games. Okay. They play some table games. Again, these timed events are okay. They're not perfect. They don't really fit into the story that's being told. So, mm-hmm. boom, let's do that. And then they meet Shemeska. We get information about her. Um, we are told that she is the villain. We are told we have to try to make her not the villain, as Teo said. <laughs> If they mistrust her, she says, I know that you mistrust me and you're smart too. So let's all work toward mutual goals. Uh, right. what, what what are the characters told? They are to locate a rogue Motron R04M, who will be called Rome from now on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he vanished into the Outlands. She's busy. She wants the PCs to track him down. Uh they, she gives them the portal key so they can get to the Outlands. Uh, she says, I have to go, uh, but I'll have my agents search for the information you're looking for, and away we go. Hey, take a level. Okay. Yeah. Now we go into the Outlands. So this begins part two, uh, chapter four. While Shemeska investigates the character's origins and the strange magic affecting the adventurers, the party travels to the Outlands in search of a fugitive Modron. Their trail leads to a mysterious castle with the ability to traverse the plane. The magical fortress has recently been occupied by fiends, which proved to be an impediment to investigating the site, learning more about the missing Modron, and exploring the Outlands beyond. Yeah, and... Or is it? <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of these things where you are... The goals, you know, the whole goal is find this Modron. And uh, something that we see a lot in organized play is the, you know, here are the things the characters would ask and how to Mm -hmm. deal with that. And this does not have that, right? We meet Shemeska and we're just told, use this portal key. And I would want to have a whole bunch of questions of, is the Mimra on the other side? Where or the um, Modron on the other side? Where do I find Rome, right? what am I doing? Where am I going? Where will this lead me to? You know, any of that. None of that is given here. You have to read ahead to if somehow you just, and you'd have to decide whether Shemeska would answer any of this, but you're going to arrive 
in a wasteland halfway between the spire and the gate town of Torch. And there's nothing going on, though there is an obvious trail that um uh of of something that has moved through something massive right and it's it's, and, it's very strange because it says you see an obvious trail and it's like big gouges in the earth it doesn't even describe that but it it, it does i don't even know if it's in the box text oh, maybe great, it's in the box great text, impact divots mark the passage of something enormous there it is right and then it calls for a DC-12 wisdom survival check to know that it wasn't made by animals. And I'm thinking, <laughs> really? <laughs> a well, yeah. huge divot-sized, yeah. they're not footprints at all. Uh, I think I could have probably figured that out on my own. I don't know if a DC-12 wisdom survival check is is necessary there. Maybe mm. to know that it's made by metal squares or you know something like that well and this is one where i would just say that the the person who rolls the highest survival check knows the following if you're going right. to even call for a check but yeah why even um so if you go to this you find this walking castle that has this great artwork um where it looks like it's like sort of this towering castle almost like a like a wedding cake kind of towering upwards and then it has these legs that don't even connect. They're sort of like pillars that just sort of barely touch or don't even touch and that reach down to the ground that really end on like points. So it's, it's actually a quite weird type of track that it leaves if the artwork is to be believed. Um, who knows which came first? Um, but, but, you know, this is one of these things where you're like, hey, the portal took me to just a random spot. Am I supposed to think this castle has anything to do with my quest? Mm -hmm. Of course it does, but there's nothing right. that really would drive that, and logic would speak against it, right? But but it does. Yeah. In other words, if they come through, if unless there is a compelling reason not to have the castle be just there, have the castle be just there. Mm -hmm. Because all you're doing otherwise is giving the players a chance to get distracted, yes. to get to to argue, to say well, no, we don't, we don't, we want to avoid this. And so if your instructions to the DM are, if they follow the castle, they find it. And if they don't follow the trail, they still find it. Then yeah. just eliminate everything that comes before that and just and, put the castle there. You know, and, uh, and a way to do it would be just as they show up, you know, they, they the, the castle's almost upon them. They have to scramble out of the way. And if they look at tracks, they can tell that it's actually been through here a lot. So it's mm -hmm. going, which would make a lot of sense with what's going on in the castle, that it's sort of going around in circles. Yep. And that would make a lot of sense, which then explains why you just happen upon this thing. Well, this thing's going around and around because of the events that we're going to get to. And so, of course, it's going. But now it's it's there. It's interesting. It's part of the situation. And this uh, walking castle is a githzerai built Hermitage from times past for the study of the plains, currently inhabited by Zathir, but she is being held captive by fiends. And um, we're not kind of given a whole lot of reason of just fiends seem to have come here and taken over the castle. Right. Um, and they're, so they're they're trying to learn how to make it move in the way that they want it to move. Right. But it, the book literally says. Their, their motives are, quote, up to you. 
It could be <laughs> that they want information. Mm-hmm. It could be that Shemeska has hired them to to find uh, Rome. And I'm like, why would Shemeska want to hire them to find Rome? Is there a reason? What's again? What's her plans? Yeah. Uh, then I can give a good reason for the fiends to be there. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and you know, it's um, it's one of those interesting things that that you know we asked a lot when we were reading the setting. Will the adventure give us what Planescape is? And you know, it's been hit or miss. Like that, there wasn't any faction involvement in the casino. While there's some interesting characters, they aren't necessarily like outer planar interesting. They don't tell us a whole lot about the fabric of Sigil. And now we're in the Outlands. So, you know, are we going to learn about the Outlands? And I don't want it to just be that there's wild stuff anywhere. Like that shouldn't just be the answer. And this is one of those things that feels like, well, we'll just put fiends there. Like, you know, because anything can be here. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, who do they work for? What are they tied to? Like, that, there could be an interesting story there that could lead maybe to more play if if the characters feel like it. But I, I think there's that fear of keeping them on track, not having it mean anything. So there are just fiends here. And the fiends have taken over most of the castle. So you can fight them and work your way through. There's a, a cool map that shows sort of how everything connects. Um this is a library, so there is uh, there are various things that you can look at in terms of those um, locations, but but nothing particularly wild. Um, and so the main thing is getting to Zathir, the Githzerai protector. Um, there's a thing called the Castellan, which controls the movement of the castle, mm-hmm. and then there's a Mimir, which is damaged, <laughs> and that part's very funny. <laughs> the yeah. whole Mimir. What what'd you think of that, John? Oh, I, I yeah. I mean that that was really cute. There were some funny parts or or interesting parts like uh that in the library there was a mummy of the original librarian yeah. who is not alive, but if you ask for where something is in the library, the mummy's eyes will move to that section of the library. So it's just we're gonna call this mummy Dewey Decimal. Uh the the gif uh dewey decimal system yeah uh so that you know there were there are neat things like that and the mimir is the whole reason why plot wise why the characters need to be here uh the characters need to be here because this mimir called the mosaic mimir was being used by rome to get information on the outlands Okay, now we finally at least understand what why we're here. What Rome is doing. Rome is trying to find out what happened along the path of the Great Modron March the last time it took place. So it was using this Mimir to to uh, gather information and be told information about that march. Unfortunately, this Mimir was uh damaged in the fiend attack so it's lost a lot of the information that it had and it can't be used to figure out where rome might have gone so what do we need to do to get this mimir to uh reset we need to visit the places where it is missing information from okay yeah 
Uh, and so we get a list of towns, gate towns, where it's missing mm -hmm. data. Automata, Cursed, Excelsior, Fonell, Glorium, Rigus, and Sylvania. And, mm -hmm. uh, and then in general, it's missing data about the last great Modron march. So mm -hmm. to restore it, you can learn with an intelligence check, or Zathir can just tell you, that you have to be in the place you're receiving data about. So being within five feet of a gate town. And whoever has attuned to the Mimir must record a description of the location and their impression of it, mm -hmm. taking one minute. And now you can check that off of this tracking sheet that you have, and you have done this. And I'm thinking to myself, that is really weird. I get within five feet of the gate town. I tell you what I think of it. And now it's good. Like that reboots its little knowledge of the gate town. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm fine with that. Actually. I'm fine. Normally I might go, what? But at least it's something. <laughs> it's, it's a goal that the players have now moving toward their objective and it's what I would expect from a Planescape adventure, right? We need a reason to go to the gate towns to see all these cool places. Here it is. Is it forced? Yes. Well, yeah, but are a lot but, of D&D things forced? Yes. Sure. But wouldn't shouldn't it be like see three notable things in the town? It's something to make me go inside. Like I don't have to go inside. I I think it says within five feet of the gate. Not oh, the, the portal. Town. It's the portal. Of the okay. portal, okay. right. I thought you just right. had to get within five feet of the town. No, no, okay. no. Oh, I, yeah. You're right. Right. Yeah. So you do have to go into the town. Okay. And then Good. if you are within five feet of the portal that leads to the outer plane, something's going to happen. Right. Something. By, by then you've had the yeah. heart of the... Okay, yeah, that makes right. sense. I'm okay. I'm okay with the forced nature of that. At least it makes sense yeah. that you will have experienced the town. I, I The portal key, that's, that's, that's the key. But not the portal key. But... Well, the, the weird thing, though, is we're told that what the characters say or record into the Mimir will become important at the conclusion. And I'm like, huh, that's weird. So I it's I was do on D&D Beyond. So I like it says, you know, adventure conclusion. So I clicked that link and it literally took me to the conclusion of the adventure. And I, I didn't have a lot of time. So I'm like, let me just skim here. And it really doesn't say it gives this impression of what if the characters give it real information good if they give it slightly flawed information eh, if they give it like information that's just plain wrong and something bad's going to happen but i it, we don't get any more detail than that so you could run this whole thing players could just like say okay over there is a fire elemental and over here's this and over here's that and they they give us this uh, sheet to write on. Yeah. But I don't, as the DM, I don't understand the implications, the consequences yeah. of what they do. And it the needs tracker, to be told there. This tracker has, you know, the name of each gate town, Automata, description, and you could maybe fit cram in a sentence here with poor handwriting. Uh, and mm -hmm. then it's accurate slash skewed. So I guess you're choosing one or the other. So at least on the tracking side, as you play through this, you're going to write down a description and you can choose whether it's accurate or skewed. And that's going to drive the results. Yeah, it feels a little thin, uh, like like mm -hmm. not enough of a. I would almost want what I'd rather have is events, right? Where how did you handle this event? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that each gate town would have 
a choice, right? A meaningful choice where it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about the town's nature, your nature, what are you going to do here? Mm -hmm. That to me would be, that would be an unlock, right? That would be a real, and that players could go and say like, yeah, yeah, we made that decision. Oh, it had repercussions. Accurate skewed is sort of like, I don't know, the one character that did the info had a sense of humor. And so now you suffer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think huge spoiler here. I think the point is that this information that the characters give is going to reset reality. Right. And so if they give incorrect information, reality will be set incorrectly, Correctly. which I love that idea. If that's the case, tell me here. Tell me right now. Yeah. yeah. So, so I pay attention. But if also, it just says this is important yeah. in the conclusion, but you don't tell me what's at stake, mm-hmm. my level of engagement with that information, if I'm worried about running a fun encounter and getting this right or getting that right, or, you know, Willie doesn't have enough pizza at the table, so I need to order a new, another pizza, right? I need to know the scope and the scale and the consequences of what's happening right now. Yeah, yeah. It, well, and, and also... A sense of fairness is important, right? Because if the DM mm-hmm. starts thinking that the players may be saddened by an outcome one way or the other, but they don't know whether it's particularly important to be accurate or skewed, mm-hmm. you know, that's a. We also get information on the last great Modron march on um, mm-hmm. every 289 years, untold numbers of Modrons are lost. They march. Enter the Outlands through the portal in the gate town of Automata. They visit all the gate towns. They pass through the Romani settlement of Dendradis at the base of the Spire. Then they go into portals into the Outer Plains. Uh, eventually, they return to Mechanus. And the last great Modron march occurred ahead of schedule and experienced a heightened number of irregularities and losses. losses and they say for tenebrous reasons, which I like because... I think Tenebris mm-hmm. was the name of like the stand-in for who was really behind it. Um, right. Interestingly, we're not told the history of that. Right. Maybe it doesn't matter, or maybe they don't care. Like I'm curious. Like why would you not say what happened in that adventure at all? Yeah, I I I'm okay if they don't, as long as it's not important. Yeah, if it's not um, important, right? Yeah. If 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 all I need to know is the last march went poorly. And say say exactly what it is. This is a census. The Modrons are taking a census of everything. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they do it. And if things go poorly, that affects the Modrons and, and effectively reality. could af- affect the reality. Yeah. Yeah. The, the entire uh, multiverse. So just the, that little bit more of information will help me as the DM say, oh, okay, I see what's happening here. This is going to be what the players do are is going to affect reality in the long run. So I need to make special notes about these sorts of things yeah. Uh, yeah. and why. Um, and yet, you know, at the end, it seems that for all the actions they may make, what matters is whether this description is accurate or skewed. So I'm, I'm going to have problems with that as we read this. Um, yeah. We're, we're told that, uh, you know, some information on travel, it could take you a long time to get from one place to another or short. It's sort of up to you. Um, the next chapters, 5 to 11, are these seven gate towns. You can do them in any order. There is an order written on the tracker. 
handout and and that was told earlier in the text um but they can go in any order they want and when you explore two towns you will gain a level the fourth town eighth level and you get to ninth level and you explore six so every two towns you are gaining a level um, so that you will be ninth level before you start chapter 13. And that's what we will get to next time. We will look at these chapters that show what happens when the characters take the Mosaic Mimir and head off to these gate towns to fill it with new and hopefully accurate information. Uh, so, Teos, before we head off, any other thoughts on chapters three and four? Um Chapter four, I think, in general is fine. It's a little weird, that setup. But once it gets going, I think that it's a fun location. Uh, the the monsters, the fiends you fight, Mesoloth and others are interesting. Um, it's cool. Um, you know, right now, chapters two and three, the, the, the walk through sigil and fortune's wheel felt to me weak and misaligned with player goals. Uh, they didn't deliver to me a great sigil experience. I might end up with one if I do so as DM, but they don't deliver it to me in what's written, uh, nor do they, I think, facilitate it greatly for, for where I'm standing. Um, my Outlands experience is so far largely about a castle, though in a weird setting that's discovered as being you know multicolored and whatever. So I'm excited to get more Outlands that is actually Outlands. Um, it is interesting mm -hmm. that at the end of this, you might have a walking castle that you're roaming in. That's kind of cool. Um, I dig mm -hmm. that. I think that's a really neat idea. Um, but I'm, I'm curious how these gate town experiences will be and whether we get some additional Outlands experiences to really frame that well and make that setting sing. What do you think, Sean? Yep. A lot. Same, the exact same thing. A lot of how I think of this adventure is going to be writing on these next seven chapters mm -hmm. to see what they do with the setting that they've shown us throughout the other two books of this set. So we will be here to go through that next time. Thank you so much, Teos, for, as always, your fine contributions to the show. And thank you to our patrons who keep the lights on here for us, keep the servers running, keep the caffeine flowing, keep the little gerbil in Sean's brain spinning his wheel. Thank you specifically to our Master of Dungeon supporters of our Patreon. Thank you to our Master of Realms supporters and our Masters of the Multiverse patrons. Well, you get your name read on the air. Graham Ward, James Walton, Joe Tyler, Trey, Krishna Simonse, Andy Shockney, Ross Sandberg, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Robert Pasley, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Falcon Neal, Sean Molly, The Micro Ant, Eric Mengi, The Mathemagician, Chad Lynch, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Brian King, Chad Jackson, Sean Hurst, Ben Heisler, and Paige Lightman, The Mighty Jerd, Nathan Fuller, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Seth Eckel, Darren Chandler, Evil John, Merrick Blackman, Steve Bissonette, Craig Bailey, and Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thank you all for listening and for supporting us via the Patreon. If you like our show, if you are a longtime listener, please do consider supporting the Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash mastering D&D. 
And every cent is a love letter to us, and it fills our heart with joy. It does indeed. If you get a chance, also leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you are on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel. Uh, that helps us out, helps spread the word, and you get to see these lovely faces each and every week. Teos, where can people find you on the socials? Yeah, alphastream.org is my website. You can find all the information on my creations, the latest articles. Uh, you can uh, leave me nice or rude comments there. I've been getting a few rude ones because of my recent, you know, they found me, Sean. Um, they've been no. a little angry. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, you can leave non-spicy responses at alphastream.org, and it's always appreciated. And honestly, the most cool fun is when you uh, support us on Patreon and you hang out with us in the Discord. Mm -hmm. That means the world to me. I love the folks there interacting with them, bouncing ideas back and forth. That's really cool. Thank you for that. Sean, tell me where you're hiding, and please don't say it's Twitter. Come on. Uh, I am hiding in plain sight on all the places. Oh. All the places. If you uh, find me at Sean Merwin... Uh, on those places you can talk with me there the the uh, show itself is also on all the places at mastering dnd if you join our patreon as teo said you can join our community our uh our forums talk to us interact with us let us know what you want us to talk about and give us your opinions on these topics you can also leave comments on the mastering dungeons youtube channel so we are now in charge of a walking castle, and we are heading out into the Outlands. What are we going to do now? Oh, well, I'm going to use the franchise rules first to uh, change the whole experience around the castle. Uh, and then I'm going to uh, go watch all the Miyazaki films for inspiration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to take a nap because it's been only a few hours since I died. 